Hi, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Montague Reporter Podcast. It's been kind of a chill summer, so (laughs) thanks for your patience. This is the first bonus episode of the summer. This was a really fun one to record. I really enjoyed meeting our guest, David Brule. He's an integral part of the Montague Reporter with his West Along the River column and his service on the board of directors. Some highlights of the conversation for me were our connections with language learning, writing and the process of writing, and David's research on his roots and family history. And by the way, um, I just wanted to mention, if you are interested in serving on the board of the Montague Reporter, you should reach out to David Brule or Mike Jackson. Okay, enjoy. So I'm David Brule. I was born and raised here in Turner's Falls, actually born in the Farron Memorial Hospital. Right after the Second World War, I was one of the baby boomers, one of the first part of that wave of children and babies born right after, right after World War II. I grew up uh, what we used to call the hill. Most of my family was living down here on L Street, 2nd Street, Avenue A. My father worked down here on L Street at Williams Garage, which is now the Nova Motorcycle Spot. But when my father came back from the war, he had a chance to buy a house on the hill next to his best friend, so that's what happened. So we, we lived up uh, up there over the Narrows, which had a huge influence on my life because it was within eyesight of the Connecticut River. My mother's side of the family lived in what we used to call Miller's Falls, which was a huge cultural entity encompassing both sides of the uh, Miller's River. Technically, it's divided uh, between Montague and Irving, mm-hmm. so I live on what we could call the Irving side, but the, the land that I inherited, basically I could stand on the shore of my land and, and hit Montague with a rock, you know, if I threw it across the river, because it's that close. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, my mother's side of the family, actually they came to town uh, right after the Civil War, so I've got pretty deep roots there. And my great-grandfather was a mixed-race uh, Native American with uh, African blood and white blood. I've written a book about it. He came here to work for the Miller's Falls Company, which is a brand new company. He drove horse and wagon for them right after, starting in about the 1870s. Of course, my great-grandfather passed away in the 1920s, and my grandfather uh, lived on in the same house until the 1970s. And then when I, I came back to Miller's Falls uh, in that, at about that time and bought the house from the, the siblings of my mother. And so I've been there ever since. So, and my son is living there. So that makes five generations of us in the same house over, you know, 150 years, basically. Mm-hmm. You often write about that in your column, mm-hmm. your daily observations and also like the history of your family there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So what is it like to live in, well, in, yeah. the, in amongst the history like that? Yeah, it's, it's, 
it's been really a source of stories for me because uh, I have a pretty good memory and I listen to people a lot. I used to write a column alternating with the West Along the River column called uh, a Village Sketchbook. So all the stories that I remembered hearing about or the characters that I knew growing up, I usually developed stories around them and it rang. It rang a bell for a lot of people around who either knew the, these characters or had heard of them. So growing up in that area has been, you know, just inspired us so many different stories because, first of all, you know, nature there is just ever-changing, so there's never a dull moment. Um, just to find the material for a story, all you have to do is go out to the woods or walk along the river and something always happens. Mm -hmm. So I like to, you know, weave that in. I kind of like feel that because I have such deep uh, roots there that I, I, I feel very grounded, very centered there. Um, I know stories about the woods before they were woods, when they were fields, when my great-grandfather was there and my grandfather and mother. So, yeah. Over the years, the stories from my columns, West Along the River columns, I mean, I started probably writing in 2005 or six, mm -hmm. every week or every other week, put it that way. And so that's a lot of years of articles that I think is kind of a, a really good capsule about life in this town. So I did collect all of these stories, and they have now been published in three different volumes, West Along the River. I call it West Along the River because, uh, well, I, that inspiration came from a, an Irish fiddle tune called West Along the Road. And so I said, hmm, the river is flowing west, I play fiddle, and I've been to Ireland, I speak Irish, and so I said, West Along the River would fit just right. For the Irish, the, the West is incredibly important. Usually, um, if you're going in that direction, it's a good direction to go in. Uh, so, come West along the road means, you know, follow me, we're going to a good, good place. So, you've written the three books, West Along the River 1, mm -hmm. 2, and 3? Is yes, that what they're called? Yes, that's exactly Have you written called. other books? Well, the other book uh, that I mentioned about the, the gene genealogical search, that's mm -hmm. called Looking for Judah intrigued by my great-grandfather's lineage, uh, I started looking into that and I had a lot of help from a cousin of mine uh, who lives in town here who's a gifted genealogist and so she shared what she found out and I told her what the missing links to her story was because it led to this man, my great-grandfather Judah, who was something of an enigma. It was a family secret. Mm. because of his color. Mm. So you found documentation on him? Yeah, yeah. What kind of documentation? For starters, um, local stories, but also looking at um, the uh, U.S. Census, mm -hmm. where a lot of genealogists, you know, head first. Yeah, of course. And so, yeah, this particular uh, great-grandfather was born in the 1850s. and Where was he born? In Connecticut, in an Indian settlement outside of the town of Windsor called Poquanuck, to a woman of color, 
mixed race, native and African, and a white father. So uh, that set us off tracing all those different routes. And uh, once having located the name of, of my great-grandfather's mother, we were able to find her parents and trace the whole line back to Rhode Island to the uh, Narragansett Indian Reservation. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to do a genealogy book like this person begat that person and this kid married that person. It was just too boring. So I, I uh, took more uh, a writer's approach to it and uh, developed uh, the story as it unfolded. So basically I came up with this um, way of telling the story with what happened step by step of how I discovered this alternating with a chapter describing each generation of ancestors, a person from that generation going back to the 1700s to now. Mm -hmm. So in, in a lot of ways it's a little challenging because you have to keep, you have to keep in mind what I'm doing in 2007 and what some of these ancestors were doing in 1720. Leapfrog to the next generation in the 1800s. In the meantime, what I'm doing after 2005, 6, 7 is meeting a cousin uh, from Greenfield. He has just passed away, but he, he was um, African-American and Indian and lived in Greenfield, where I grew up and lived in Montague. Mm -hmm. And we were not allowed to know that we had those connections. And they didn't know about us. Wow. When I finally met them, there was a, a big event at the Energy Park in Greenfield um, to celebrate the multicultural background of Greenfield. And they had a pretty thriving black community there well before the Civil War. And uh, so there, there was a celebrated fiddler from Greenfield whose name was uh, Putnam, John Putnam. And so they were celebrating him. And by doing that, they got in touch with all of his descendants. And I knew I was connected with them because my genealogist cousin found that out. So I showed up and said, hi, <laughs> here I am. Mm -hmm. uh, we're related. And people said, that's great. No, welcome to the family. And then we, of course, we had the, the family tree there mm -hmm. and my great-grandfather's nephews married into all of those black families because there were not too many other Native Americans around and almost all of them had intermarried with the black families. So basically uh, it was all pretty well integrated and it was, it was just very moving. Mm -hmm. And from there um, we went off with this cousin I mentioned Donald Scott, we went off on all kinds of adventures together on the road looking for our roots. He had ancestors who were enslaved. He also had ancestors who were native, Mohegan and Nahantic like me, and he had ancestors who were white, you know, so there's tons of stories I could talk all morning about <laughs> how that worked out, but I put it in the book so it'd be easier to, to check that out. So how can people get this book? I really favor local bookstores, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, World Eye carries it, mm -hmm. as does the Montague Book Mill. 
they, the book mill has just been great because uh, the director there, uh, Susan, just, you know, ever since I ever approached her about it, she, sure, so she keeps my books in stock and they go through, you know, people, yeah. people visiting like to check up on local authors, you know, see, get some insight into the local area. So. Yeah. Of course, you can get it online. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't particularly recommend that because the royalties are minuscule to a, an author. It's really not fair for a, for a writer to. Yeah. And we like the local places. I lived in France when I. Uh, Graduated from Turners Falls High School, went to college, and my junior year, I went on a junior year abroad program to Paris. Study abroad, and how did how did you decide to do that? Well, my name is Brulé, so my grandparents living in town here spoke French. Were they French or from Quebec? Quebec. Okay. Quebec, yeah, and so I had that somehow that gene inside me that that strand of DNA and it really struck a chord. I wasn't a very good French student in high school, but mm -hmm. once I got to France, it really You became came more out. serious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just came out. I mean, I wound up teaching French for, for 40 years mm -hmm. and I understand the psychology was going on, which is for some people, you hesitate to open your mouth because you think you're going to make a mistake. Mm. So I was that way. It took months. Mm -hmm. before I dared really take a chance. Oh, really? Yeah, it was unbelievable. At, at what broke that inhibition was going out on my own hitchhiking over the Christmas vacation. Oh, that'll force you and to then, talk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'd, get, you have no you know, choice. I'd stop and somebody you know, would take me and then yeah. start hitting me with questions. And, of course. And it didn't take long. I mean, I literally, I, I hitchhiked from Paris to Morocco. Wow, and that's in a that, long way. So you went through in, Spain. In huh? about four rides, yeah, and I, I spoke Spanish. Okay. And by then I had more uh, confidence. So literally in that four-day trip, mm -hmm. I went from you know, not daring open my mouth to you know, the floodgates opened. Mm -hmm. I could just, I haven't stopped since. Mm -hmm. So that's basically what drew me to France. And then... When I graduated, I had joined the Peace Corps, so mm -hmm. I went to live in Morocco. So I spent uh, two years there, obviously immersed in French and Arabic. I had learned Moroccan Arabic before leaving and during the training program. So yeah, so I lived um, in, in the Middle Atlas Mountains for two years, far away from any other Americans as I could get. This, this was in the late 60s. I just wanted to go find myself and, you know, I had a job teaching English in the high school in the mountains there. And then when I was done, I returned to Paris and uh, enrolled in the Political Institute in uh, International Relations. So you told me earlier that you have lived in France on and off? Yeah. And I've read it in your column. Mm -hmm. You write about kind of your daily life in France yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that came about because um, when I did come back in uh, 1972, mm -hmm. had my degree from the University of Paris in international relations, not a lot going on in Turner's Falls about international relations. But I came back because the house was going to be sold that I, that I now live in. 
uh, my grandfather had passed away and, the, and his children didn't know what to do with it, so they were going to put it on the market. And I said, no, 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 I'll leave Paris, bring my wife and son, and we'll live in the old homestead. Oh, you got married in France. Yeah, yeah. So backtrack to finishing um, the Peace Corps, mm. going to follow my dream of going to the University of Paris to study political science. While I was doing that, uh, I met my wife mm. in Paris. She's Breton, born and raised in Brittany, but living in Paris. And so we, uh, we got married in Brittany in a little country town where she was born and raised. And then we had a son, and uh, I finished my degree. And when the house was coming up for sale here, all three of us came back. So it seems like a big sacrifice that you made to, to continue your family yeah. history yeah. and really yeah. dive into that. Later in the book uh, that I, I wrote about looking for Judah, I explore that whole thing. You know, I didn't know why I came back. I just came back for sentimental reasons. Mm. And uh, we were living in the city in Paris, beautiful place to be. But thinking about the way I grew up and she grew up in rural settings, neither of us are really city people. Mm. And our son was one. And I'm thinking, okay, I'd really like him to be more connected with nature get to know the rivers. So both of us took the plunge and said, yeah, we'll go back. But the saving grace was that as a French teacher at Amherst High School, of course, they had the summers off. Mm. So I would literally go to school with my suitcase. <laughs> the last day of school, we'd be on the way to Boston, to Logan, you know, within that day or within a day. Wow. So we literally spent eight weeks and my wife Monique's family. Mm -hmm. So that was good for everybody. Uh, we got out of town. We had a great summer either in Brittany or in Paris. It was good for our son who got to know his family mm -hmm. in France and it was good for his language. We only spoke French as he was growing up and when he went to school uh, he had to learn English and my sense as a language professional is that when we went back to France he was afraid of losing his English so he refused to speak French until <laughs> just like me hitchhiking his grandmother was babysitting him and she didn't know any English so he had literally it took a week and but he had to break down and speak French with her and that was it and then he just like me he hasn't looked back he's perfectly bilingual actually is in the interim has picked up Portuguese and German as well. So, you know, just kind of runs in the family, I guess. I guess it does <laughs> run in the family. Because yeah, uh, yeah. when you said earlier that you spoke Irish, I was mm -hmm. like, how does one learn to yeah. speak Irish yeah. as an American? Well, um, so on my mother's side, it was this mixed race strand as well as Irish. Her mm. mother was Irish from County Kerry. My Irish came about in a roundabout way because spending time in Brittany in the summers, of course, people spoke Breton there. Mm. So I said, here I am. I got French, I got Spanish, and I can't just sit here and not know what's going on. So I started teaching myself Breton, and there's a lot of materials to do that. Plus, people spoke Breton, which is a Celtic language also. And from there, I said, well, I've got this, or what about Irish, which is closely related to Breton, but doesn't sound or look like it at all, but some words are similar. So um, I picked up materials in Brittany about learning Irish <laughs> and so I continued that and then 
I came across an announcement saying that in Donegal there uh, are, is an Irish language summer institute immersion, total immersion, um, for adults. So I went. And I went for a good 10 years straight every for about two weeks there. Mm-hmm. It's kind of been the story of my life of, is when I, I know of these aspects of my heritage, I just follow it to the nth. I just mm-hmm. go all the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't learned a native American language yet, and mm-hmm. I kind of hesitate to even start because it's like you know a huge investment. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of materials. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this area, there are predominantly Abenaki and Nitluk. So those are the two local, regional tribes mm-hmm. that are developing their language heritage. And a lot of these languages were almost gone. Some of the native speakers of that were generations ago and just barely transmitted some of the information. Mm-hmm. But it might be the next thing I do. <laughs> So I had a question about your writing process because mm-hmm. I feel like I'm kind of in the process of getting back into or kind of relearning yeah, writing yeah. and reading mm-hmm. and mm. that kind of thing personally. So it seems like you uh, write a lot about your daily life and I was wondering how does your daily routine factor into mm-hmm. your writing habit? So um, when this paper was founded, you know, I had all these stories in my head and I had been writing a journal for, you know, ever since I was a kid. So I approached David Detmold, who was at the time the editor and founder, and I said, can I write a column? And he said, sure. So I wrote, you know, that very first essay that's in West Along the River One is there. And, uh, you know, he liked it, people liked it, so he had me continue to write, uh, oftentimes once a week, and then it got more expanded to once every other week, which is a lot better for me. When it's time for me to think about an article every other week, I sit in the morning especially, a cup of coffee, sitting outdoors and read a little bit of poetry and that usually triggers some images or what I see. So I just write them down as a journal. But oftentimes I've found that that journal is the kernel of a story. Poetry helps a lot, the brain waves, you know, it's like listening to Baroque music, really good for your brain. Um, that surfing, melodic way, and, and words in poetry are like that. So I, you know, I get anthologies and I just read until I hit something I like. And, and then you journal on what you've just yeah, read? Yeah, From there, what I think is pretty archaic is I have a clipboard with a lot of paper on it, and I write it longhand. I'm sitting outside, so I, there's that kind of a atmosphere that gets into the phrasing, yes. yeah. and I'm writing longhand. And then when it comes time, a couple of days before the deadline, I sit down at the computer and I just type what I've written, but as I'm writing, all this new phrasing pops into my head, and so I'm going much further. Mm-hmm. And I let it sit a bit, and then keep rereading it and looking for mistakes that Mike might find, but also, um, you know, sometimes a better way of turning the phrase. But I, mm-hmm. I do it, that's my so-called process, you know. Okay. Uh, and it just, it pretty much flows. I'm just very fortunate because, uh, like I said, I've been writing my whole life. So, we're never intending to publish, but I haven't run out of 
inspiration yet, you know, mm -hmm. and, it's, and, and so that's kind of my method. I don't know if it'll work for everybody, but um, I do think that, at least from my generation, writing longhand, you have a different contact with your words as opposed to typing them out. Mm -hmm. um, and so I like that part and uh, I feel more comfortable with it in spite of the fact that later I, I do type it out. But mm -hmm. I think if I were sitting in front of the computer page and, and doing it, it wouldn't feel the same organic process to me anyway. So, so that's what I do. <laughs> I don't know. It might not work for many other people, but yeah. you know, it's, it's worked for me all this time. So. Well, thanks so much for describing that. Yeah, it's, you know, there's, like I said, I've, there's, there's, uh, it's been a full lifetime that I've had here in town and out of town. And, yeah. You know, I've been, uh, I, I'm glad that I came back, but I'm also glad to get away from time to time, you know, mm -hmm. so. So I also wanted to ask you um, about the board because yeah. you're the chair mm -hmm. of the board mm -hmm. of directors of the Montague mm -hmm. Reporter. Yeah. Right. And that's a pretty important role. Maybe not everyone listening to this yeah, would right. be aware that mm -hmm. the Montague Reporter is a nonprofit newspaper. Right. Could you talk about that and the governance and the board's role, I guess? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's this, this board of directors has gone through multiple versions and iterations. I joined the paper and the board probably when the paper was about two years old. And David Detmold was actually the only one in charge. Um, the two other founders kind of exited pretty fast. They do come up to me when we have events outside and say, you know, my name is still on the, on the heading of the newspaper and I haven't done anything in, you know, 20, 20 years. But anyway, back then, David Detmold was everything from treasurer to secretary to delivery boy to editor to writer. Wow. Yeah, he did it all. He did it all. Uh -huh. and, and, you know, the pay was like, you know, cents per hour because it would, he would put in a 70-hour week. Mm -hmm. Mike still puts in a lot, a lot of time, mm -hmm. but at least we have a little bit of way of compensating him. David, you know, did what he could with the funds that were coming in, mm -hmm. uh, but he, you know, he also was uh, managing editor for the for the advertisements and you know marketing and everything. So, so anyway, it made sense to have some kind of support. So in my way of thinking, the, um, the board came into being primarily to take some of the burden off David's shoulders. But as, you know, a year or so went by, it, we came up with this bright idea of seeking a nonprofit status, which, you know, whoever heard of a nonprofit newspaper, uh, you know, was, it's, we are not really a community newsletter that, you know, we didn't run things off on uh, mimeograph sheets and stuff. The vision was to be a good, solid community paper. So we figured we needed a, a board of directors. Besides to apply for nonprofit status, you had to have you know, somebody to turn to. So um, I don't remember the names now, uh, but Lynn Clark, who is still with me and doing a ton of board work as well as circulation director. Yes. She and I were two of the founding board members. Mm -hmm. And you know, David was part of it. It was kind of like a grow, growing thing. We, we were up to five members and then down to three, and then we had seven, and now we're down to th four. So basically, 
We started out as a board trying to take some of the burden off David's shoulders. Then we felt we needed a board of directors to uh, qualify as a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. uh, Chris Sawyer Lozano, who edits the poetry page, was one of the editors at one point, mm -hmm. uh, helped us out because after David, a couple of editors came and went. But Chris had, uh, I mean, he's, he's a renaissance man. He's got, he has all kinds of skills. And one skill was he knew how to deal with the government in terms of nonprofit papers. So he worked out the contract and the application. And we wound up getting it, except we were not uh, 501c3, which is what we really wanted to be, but they gave us a kind of a status of 501c4. And I don't really know what that means, except I think, well, it involves the status of donations coming into us. And otherwise, we still have the same kind of responsibilities to, for reporting. So what do we do? Essentially, um, we went through a number of versions uh, from, as I said, the original objective to help out the editor to, I think, our main focus quickly became uh, a board in charge of fundraising. That was the big middle version of what the board was to do. So we, uh, Chris Queen of Wendell, very um, faithful reader and writer sometimes, uh, had a lot of experience fundraising for uh, some of his organizations, in, including uh, Harvard. So he kind of guided us through the first capital campaign. So we worked on all of the, the letter to the public, the flyers, the envelopes. That, you know, Lynn does a ton of that, and Chris Queen at that time helped out a lot. But that set the template for how to do capital campaigns, mm -hmm. fundraising. So then, you know, then we did all the stuff that, you know, that other boards do, I, you know, bake sales and tag sales and uh, Yeah, I've been to a few tag sales. Yeah, yeah, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. and so, you know, we get contributions here and there. Mm -hmm. And in the current version, you know, Mike Jackson is, I mean, he's just done phenomenal things here for the paper. Mm -hmm. uh, he's really organized uh, the staff and worked on compartmentalizing, you know, and, and division of labor. And he typically joins us for a monthly board meeting and does his editor's report. We have, you know, Annie does finances and reports back on circulation and advertising. I don't know who now is in charge of that because the personnel changes. And Mike is always finding people that are willing to help out the paper. Mm -hmm. And so now um, the current uh, board is made up of myself and Lynn and uh, Joan Morell and uh, David Russell. Right now, you know, it's fairly low profile um, in the sense that the last um, fundraiser for our, I think it was our 20th anniversary. Yes, just, the 20th anniversary. Just knocked the ball out of the park. We it was did, amazing. The, the community was incredibly responsive mm -hmm. and supportive. So. That was by far the most successful fundraiser. We, we've had, like I said, bake sales, and we've had uh, holiday um, dining experiences. Uh, you know, way back uh, when the Blue Heron was 
at the Montague Book Mill complex. We had a wonderful meal there. A lot of people came out, a lot of people donated, but that was years ago. Then we did things at the wagon wheel. We had game night. I mean, it was just trying to do all kinds of things to, you know, we, we get a couple hundred dollars at a time. And Lynn was always in charge of getting pledges from the local uh, businesses for when the Turner's Falls High School girls won the softball champion, state championship, which they did year after year after year after year. And that raised a lot of money for us. We were hoping that girls would win because we could, we could use, uh, use that wonderful victory as a way to draw in a little bit more revenue. You know, people would, businesses would say, yeah, I'll, I'll send in $50 if you put my business as congratulating the team, you know, mm -hmm. so Lynn came up with that. So, I mean, you know, it's just been, just been that mm -hmm. as we go. Right now, we are still organized, we're still part of the board, we're just taking a breather after that, you know, tremendously successful anniversary campaign. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, we've had high watermarks of almost eight or nine people on the board and, and then down to three of us and then now there's four. <laughs> so are you looking for more people to be involved in the board? That, that would be really great if we could find people. People kind of think it's daunting and it's really basically uh, not. Mm. <laughs> you know, we meet, when we have a, a meeting we have to go over business and all of that and, and hear the status of the budget. Basically, you know, we need people just to spread the few responsibilities around a little bit better. Mm -hmm. It'd be great if people hearing this would be interested. It's, it's a really good way to help the paper out, help the community out. At one point, um, we basically came to the conclusion that the board would um, oversee generally um, the paper. But and in terms of operations, but not have anything to do with the editorial content. So we don't oversee what is in the paper, but we do assist in, you know, the week-to-week -week operations in terms of finances, especially and mm -hmm. fundraising. That's the that's the huge part. Yeah, I I, I think that the paper could easily win awards and recognition. Oh yeah. If we only That's for knew, sure. if we only had a person who was really able to pursue that. You know, we all yeah. of us wear multiple hats in town and mm -hmm. I mean I'm on about four town commissions mm -hmm. in, in Irving and in Montague. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, trying to keep everything straight. I, I it would be really hard, but if if there were a person who could uh, pursue that, I'm sure we'd, you know, this is such an incredible paper, and it's getting better and better, and the color is nice, the articles are, are wonderful. Mm -hmm. So yeah. yeah, so that's Definitely kind of what the board agree. does right now in our current situation where we are um, taking a breather, but we're also you know, trying to figure out what the next source of revenue will, will be, because obviously you know, the, the bulk of funds coming in are from subscribers and advertisers and the sales through the stores sometimes you know it's it's helpful but we're just barely you know I always chuckle when I tell people yeah nonprofit it really describes us because we aren't making any money you know yeah <laughs> so well thank you so much well, David Brule mm -hmm. for being here yeah now thank you for asking me
to uh, share this. Yeah. So it's great <laughs> to have been given the chance to talk. Hope we'll get another chance.